0: the fear of the Lord, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you hear the term church, what is it that comes to mind? Do you think of a building? Do you think of steeples? Do you think of people? What exactly do you think about when you hear the term church? People have advocated several different things about the church. They look at the church in several different ways. Some advocate that the church is an institution, meaning that it has a structure, it has a government, there are leaders, there are creeds, there are forms of worship, and so you call that the institutional model. Some advocate that the church is a community of people in whom God is mysteriously present through the Holy Spirit. Some call that the mystical communion model. They advocate that the church is a place where the grace of God is present through the sacraments, and some people call that the sacramental model. Some advocate that the church is all about gathering to hear God's word and then dispensing to um, preach God's word. And so we call that the herald model. Uh, There's also the Advocation that the church is God's agent in the world, serving the world, and some people call that the servant model. And then as we move on to number five, the church is, I'm sorry, number six, the church is the bride of Christ, and so it is living in anticipation of the bridegroom's return and the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will all be complete, and they call that the eschatological model. Now, if it is important, or let me put it this way, if the most important thing about the church is the presence of the Holy Spirit in it, sustaining its members by his grace and working through them to accomplish his mission in the world, as Avery Dulles says, then I'm not sure that any one model quite adequately describes the church. I think it's a combination of all of them. And so today we're going to focus on the church. We're in the book of Acts. We're continuing through it, but rather than reading an entire passage, we're going to read only one verse this morning, Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. However, we'll draw from the 23 other verses in the chapter as well. The verse 31 of Acts chapter 9 tells us this. Luke writing says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The first point I want to make this morning is that there is only one church. Do you believe that? There is only one church. So which one is it? Is it ours? And if there's only one church, then what's with the others? And so since you've asked this very important theological question, here is the answer. The only true church is the church that Jesus Christ himself established and of which he is the head. He established this church by his own blood that he shed on the cross and he is the head of it. And so this classic 19th century hymn, I believe, captures in essence what the church is better than any other hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and by word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life, He died, elect from every nation yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints they watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with her vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord give us grace that we like them the meek and holy on high may dwell with thee. What a beautiful hymn. Captures the beauty of God's church. And so Luke starts off verse 31 with these words. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. That's how he starts it. And so if there were several churches that were scattered across these three geographical areas, why is it that Luke tells us? Why doesn't he say, why doesn't he say the church is scattered throughout these areas? He says the church. And I believe the reason why he said that was because in reality he knew that there was only one church. Because you see, there was one faith in one Lord through one baptism. As Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 tells us, and also the hymn that we just sang uh, told us. And so they all believed in one God, the Father, who sent his one Son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world, and they believed in one Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent to be with us forever when he ascended to heaven. And so if there's only one church, how do you join it? How do you become a part of this one church? You join it by a confession. You make a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so merely attending it is not enough. As this little boy found out, he asked his dad, Dad, why did my grandpa, I'm sorry, Dad, did your grandpa make you go to church? And his dad responded, sure, he did. We all went to church every Sunday. To which the boy said sadly, Well, I bet it won't do me any good either. Ouch! <laughs> yeah, you're right. If it didn't do his dad any good, as this little boy could tell, then that he has concluded that, well, it won't do me any good either. So you don't join by just attending. You can't join by just muttering some creed either, or by merely having your name on a roll, or by being good. You can only join it by a confession of faith. In Jesus Christ as Lord you believe that he came from heaven to earth to die on a cross for your sins and for the sins of the whole world you believe that he was raised for your justification so that you might be made right with God you believe that he's coming back for you as a husband would come back for his bride you believe that you will reign with him forever And so this question that Jesus asked his disciples made it very clear about how you join his church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. He said to them, Jesus said to them, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this your confession, on this your testimony concerning me, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there is only one church, the Church of Jesus Christ, of which he is head and you can only join this church by a confession confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father here is our second point to join God's church you must walk by two basic rules and paul tells us in second corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 that anyone who is in christ becomes a new creation a new creature and when you become a new creature that means you must have a new and distinct lifestyle it must be different from the lifestyle you had before you joined his church luke compares this new lifestyle with the whole activity of walking we sometimes hear the metaphor being used of the christian walk the christian way of living the christian lifestyle Paul often used the metaphor of walking to describe our Christian lifestyle. He says, walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. He says that we walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. He implores us to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians five sixteen. It says, walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord and the vocation by which you have been called, Romans 8 and verse 4. It says, walk properly as in the daytime and not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, Romans 13 and verse 13. So there is a new lifestyle that every person who belongs to Christ's church must uh, walk by. So these are the two basic rules, the first of which is this, practice the fear of the Lord. Practice the fear of the Lord. Now what does Luke mean by the fear of the Lord? Back in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, God himself, speaking to the children of Israel after they had come out of Egypt, said to them, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, and now Israel, God says, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. We, we can't serve God in fear. We can't be afraid of God and love him. Because to be afraid of God means to keep your distance and not to even get close to him. So it cannot mean to be afraid of God. I believe it, it means having a healthy respect and reverence for the holiness of God and for the power of God. Now, the best way that I can explain to you what this whole notion of the fear of the Lord and reverence for God is, is, the, in, is in the language of my respect for the ocean. Whenever I go to the beach, and I love going to the beach. It was only five minutes away from where I live. Whenever I go to the beach, if I am the only one on the beach I never go in. I never go in. Because of the power of the ocean. It can change at any minute. That is having a healthy respect for the beach and for the ocean. To fear the Lord is to have a healthy respect for the power and the holiness of God so that you set up boundaries that prevent you from doing the things that you would ordinarily do. You give God your complete obedience. You walk in all of his ways, not just in some of them. You discipline your heart to love him above all else. Above husband, wife, children, house, property, business, finances. You love God above all else. And then you serve him not just with a portion of your heart or part of it, but with all your heart and with all your soul. Then you love your neighbor as yourself. That is the fear of the Lord. That's the first principle by which we walk. The second principle is this that you embrace the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus was about to uh, send the Holy Spirit, this is what he promised. John 14, verse 16 and verse 26. Remember, he had gathered his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and just before he would ascend back to the Father, he said this And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now it is a precious thing, a precious thing to be able to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that is so precious about walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit is the realization that you never walk alone. How comforting is that? You never walk alone. There is a presence with you at all times. No matter what you face, no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark your situation, there is always, always a presence with you. Jesus himself tells us that the Holy Spirit not only dwells with you, but he dwells in you. So he's not just your companion, but he even lives inside of you. And what he does as he dwells with you and he dwells in you is that he teaches you all things. It is amazing to me that there are many people, and this is not necessarily to put aspersions on anyone, but there are many people who um, I know of who don't even know how to read. But once they, become a be- once they became a believer, they were able to read the scriptures. There are many people who are not necessarily up on the higher echelons of learning or whatever, but they know things that are spiritual because the Holy Spirit teaches them. It's not just an academic thing in terms of following Christ. The Holy Spirit teaches you. He teaches you all things. And then he reminds you of all things because, you see, we are very forgetful people. We always forget. And so he constantly is reminding us of the things that Jesus taught us. And then he is always guiding us into all truth. That is why we turn to him for counsel and for wisdom when we are making important decisions, major decisions. We need his guidance and direction. The Holy Spirit guides us. Then he protects us not only physically, but he he protects us from all evil. Psalmist David tells us that he's always restoring our souls because physically and emotionally we become exhausted, we become spent. It is the Holy Spirit's job to refresh us and to restore our souls. So you never walk alone because there are always two sets of footprints in the sand. The second thing that is so precious about walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit is that you never hurt alone. Comforter comforts you in all of your troubles, we're told. How many of you this morning are hurting? as of some issue, emotional or otherwise. You never hurt alone. He may not always keep you from hurt, but he always comforts you in hurt. He lessens the sting of pain or loss so that you're able to hold up under it and you're able to move on from it. It is a precious thing, to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, because you never walk alone and you never hurt alone. Thirdly, God is still active in his church. That's a beautiful thing. It may not seem like that sometimes, but God is always active in his church. Now, going back to verse 31, we are going to see three blessings that God constantly gives to his church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here's the first thing that God does for his church. He blesses his church with peace. Now, peace is not the absence of trouble, but it is the presence of God during trouble. So when we, are, when we become Christians or believers, it doesn't mean that we, we have all of life as a bed of roses. There are some challenges that come to us. There are some difficulties that God does not withhold from us. But that does not mean that his presence is not with us. He blesses the church with his peace. And the peace of God comes from trusting in the God of peace. So Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3 tells us this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now the literal rendition of that verse in the Hebrew is is this. You will keep him in peace, peace, which is the English way of saying perfect peace or complete peace or double peace. Now, as long as you can manage to keep your mind on the God of peace, he will keep you in perfect peace. That is why sometimes as believers, you can be going through stuff that causes the average person to lose their mind, literally because of the enormity of what you're dealing with. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you have peace because the God of peace gives you his perfect peace. And so God, knowing that we are prone to worry, I don't know about you, but I do. Am I the only one who worries? <laughs> God, knowing that we are prone to worry, says this in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 6 through 7. He says this through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So there are some things that you first do. And then when you do these things, this is a natural result of what you do. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Why do people, why is it that people who are in trouble to the church during their crises you find them flocking to the church why do they do that it is because there is an unexplainable peace that is in the church that they know is in the church that they know, that they desperately need there is a peace that is in the church that they desperately need and they know it is there they come because they know that the God of peace is there and they need his peace in the midst of their crisis. And how can Christians hold up sometimes, as I asked earlier, under such uh, enormous difficulty and challenge? It is because there is an unexplainable peace that surpasses all understanding that guards their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Once they have committed to him their anxieties, and their fears and their frustrations and their need to him in peace. This peace comes as a direct result of trusting and committing our situations to him. Now, we all heard the terrible news this week of Jacob Blake having been shot seven times in the back by police. That is not necessarily the, the, the issue here. What is the issue, I think, is what his mother told the world as she was being interviewed by the national media. I'm going to quote her. Notice her son was just shot shot seven times in the back, and he's now permanently paralyzed. She said this, and she's an obvious believer. She says, I have a measure of God's peace which has allowed me to pray with a police officer in the hospital room and forgive. Let me read it again. I have... This is perhaps the darkest day of her life. She says, I have a measure of peace, of God's peace, which has allowed me to pray with a police officer in the hospital room and forgive. So, God has made the church the recipients of his peace. He has made us the uh, custodians of his peace, and he has made us the dispensers of his peace. Here's the second thing that God does for his church, he blesses his church by building it up. God builds up his church by bringing new people into it through conversion. Now this is what um, Saul, this is what we're told in verse 22 about Saul who had turned from from being a persecutor to being a preacher. Luke tells us now in verse 22 that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so what we're finding happening here is that God builds up his church through partnerships, partnerships between people. He established a partnership between Saul and Barnabas. Because, you see, the believers were initially afraid of Saul. They didn't really want to welcome him into their community because they they knew that he had been a persecutor of the church and they knew that he was there on that same business of arresting Christians and hauling them off to jail. Notice what Barnabas does. And all of us need a Barnabas, don't we? Barnabas stood up for Saul. We sometimes need somebody to stand up for us. And Barnabas assuaged the fears that the church had of welcoming Paul into their community by telling them that Saul had in fact been transformed, his, his, completely life, his, his life had been completely transformed while he was on the road to Damascus. And not only that, Saul had preached boldly for the first time that Jesus indeed was the Christ. I think what that tells us this morning, that we must be A Barnabas to somebody. Be a Barnabas to somebody else. Somebody else who ordinarily um, would not be welcomed in with great admiration but with fear. Stand up for somebody. Be a Barnabas. Make them feel welcome in the church. Celebrate what you have in common rather than focus on what is different. So, God builds up his church through partnership. Secondly, God builds up his church by doing miracles. Now, Luke shares with us two of of these miracles one involving a man named Aeneas, and the other involving a woman named Dorcas. I love that name because it's my mother's. It was my mother's name before she passed away. Dorcas. I think it's just, Dorcas is just a beautiful name. I just love that name. Don't you love Dorcas? (laughs) Yeah. And I love the fact that she was. She was, um, she was so industrious. She was so helpful. She made scarves and, and sweaters and dresses and tunics for people, and they loved her. And my mother was just like that. She lived up to her name very well. Now, Aeneas was confined to bed because of his paralysis. He was paralyzed. But listen to what the apostle Peter, as he was filled with the power of the Spirit, listen to what Peter said to Aeneas. He said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately we're told he was healed and he got up from his bed. He was physically healed. And then Dorcas, again, who had been such a, a wonderful woman in her lifetime. I mean, she became ill and she died. And having washed her body, they, they placed it in an upside and sorry, in an upstairs room before her burial. And there is grief and mourning in the house, because of course, these widows um, had, been, had benefited from Dorcas's ministry to them. But here what happened after Peter put them all out, because sometimes you need to kind of get rid of, of those who are uh, obstructing the things that you want to do uh, ministerially and spiritually. And so he puts them all out, Peter does, and then he knelt down and, and then he prayed. And then this is what he said to the dead body. He said, Tabitha, daughter, arise. And we're told that Dorcas opened her eyes and sat up in bed. Not a miracle, physical healing. And then thirdly and finally, God blesses his church with growth. What miracles do is that they not only amaze us when we see them happening, but it causes people to witness the power of God through the miracles that are done. And people not only become amazed at miracles, especially when they're happening in the church, but they become attracted to the church because of the power of God that is present in the church. And so the result of these miracles is that many of those who witnessed them, they believed in the Lord, and they came into the church, causing it to multiply. God multiplied and grew his church. Here's the bottom line to a message this morning. The church is not merely an organization, but an organism. An organization is one that is orderly, and it has its structure and its leadership in place and things like that, but it is devoid of life. An organism, however, is an entity that has life in it. It is dynamic because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, in this case, in the church. Here are three things I want to highlight as we close. I want to challenge you this morning who are listening to me to join the church. Join the church. I believe that the greatest invitation that you will ever receive is wrapped up in just one word, come. Whenever you hear that word, come, it sets you at ease. It removes all barriers. It offers you a gracious and generous welcome. So Jesus offers you the greatest invitation that you will ever receive when he said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. and You will find rest for your souls. The, f- the first thing I want us to notice about this invitation is this, that Jesus is inviting you to himself, not to a building, but to himself. Come to me, he says. Come to a relationship with me. Secondly, this this invitation is really for anyone and everyone, including you. He says, come to me, all of you. Thirdly, the invitation targets a specific group of people. You who are burdened, whether by care, by grief, by sorrow, or by sin. As long as you're burdened, come to me. Fourthly, I want us to notice that Jesus is not angry at you. Many times we think that way. He's not angry at you. He will be gentle with you. He says, I am lowly in heart, meaning that I am gentle. Fifthly, Jesus wants to give you something. What he wants to give you is rest for your souls. Do you need rest for your soul this morning? Only in Jesus can you find this rest. The great uh, church father, Augustine, once said, Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. And so it is very clear this morning that Jesus is offering you rest. Will you receive it? It is in receiving this rest, this forgiveness of sin, that you are entered into a relationship with him and that you can join the church, based on your confession of faith. So obviously, I'm not asking you to join a building. I'm asking you to join the church of Jesus Christ. And you do that by becoming saved. I want to pause this morning and give anyone today the opportunity to say, Jesus, my soul is burdened by sin, by weight, by care, by guilt, by anxiety. I need to find rest in Let us pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we recognize you as the author of rest and peace. God, we're going through a world that is full of chaos and turmoil and unrest and protest and sin and violence. And God, the answer to all of these things is in Jesus Christ, because, Lord, you took all of these things upon yourself when you went to the cross. You desire God to bring peace and reconciliation and harmony, not only to our individual lives, but to our communities and to our world. God, I pray this morning that if there's one person today who senses in their heart that they need this rest that you offer, this forgiveness, this peace. God, I pray that today would be the day that they enter into this relationship with you where you forgive their sin, where you give them peace. God, I pray that even one person would be able to celebrate that reality today. And God, while we are praying for that, we also pray for our nation and for our world. Our world is torn apart by strife God, by panic, by chaos, by grief, by fear, by division, by political tensions. God, we need nothing more than your peace this morning. And we ask God that you, you, who are the Prince of Peace, would bring peace to our communities and bring peace to our nation, because you are the God of peace. We thank you for doing that this morning. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's the second application point I want to challenge you with this morning. To embrace the new lifestyle to which you have been called. Embrace the new lifestyle to which you have indeed been called. What I mean by that is that you must learn how to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Develop a healthy respect, a healthy reverence for the fear of God and for the holiness and power of God. Cultivate a lifestyle of obedience to God. This is what God desires more than anything else, your obedience. Ask God to help you to love him above everyone else and everything else. And then serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Thirdly and finally, I want to challenge you to choose to become a co-builder with God. God is building something. He's building his church, and he wants you to become a co-builder with him. Now, how can you help God build his church? By putting to work the gift that God has given you. God has given each of you a gift in some instances, more than one gift. This morning, you saw some people using the musical gift uh, in terms of um, piano and, what do you call this, clavinova, Klavino- all right, and vocals to serve him. That is one way of building his church. But you don't have to have the gift of music. That, not that anything is wrong with the gift of music. We need the gift of music, and thankfully we have that. But whatever your gift is, put that to work to build God's church. So there are many ways in which you can serve here at Brown's Chapel. Again, talk with Rhonda if, you want to, if you're musical inclined and you want to become involved in any way. I'm sorry? All of that, yes. <laughs> I'm coming to that, John. I'm coming, trust me. I'm working my way down to that, trust me. I have it right here in my notes as well. <laughs> All right, so talk to Rhonda if, you, if you're musically inclined and you want to be involved in helping to build God's church through music and worship. Talk with Pastor Ben about how you, you can use your gift on the on a monthly basis, and I think in the, the way he has this set up is that you're not going to be used more than once every four, three or four weeks, right? Um, whether in the nursery or with... Um, children's ministry, or even with teens. Talk with Julie about how you can use your gift to welcome people, whether as an usher or greeter, or with refreshments on Sunday morning. I saw somebody bringing in some refreshments this morning. I looked in the room and they, wow, we had a lot of fruit and um, donuts and stuff. These are, That's important because we do fellowship, don't we? And we do, we do survive not only on the word but on physical nourishment. So talk with Julie about how you can do that. And then talk with John back there now about how you can help out with our audiovisual ministry. And there is a need for that. Uh, John will train you in how to do that. So talk to him about that. Talk to me about how you can use your gift in some small group ministry that will help with discipleship or how you can serve in the community with outreach. Because there are ways here of, of, of causing this church to be built up. And it won't be built up without you. God can do it without you, but, but he won't. I'm sorry. God can do it, but he won't do it without you. And I came across this little um, quotation that I'd like to share with you in closing. I wanted to make it personal as well. So It reads like this. This is my church. So there's ownership there. There's, there's some ownership. This is my church. It is composed of people just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will do a great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I am generous. It will bring others into its fellowship if I bring them. Its seats will be filled if I fill them. It will be a church of loyalty and love of faith and service if I, who make it what it is, am filled with these. Therefore, and this is the resolution now, therefore, with God's help, I dedicate myself to the task of making all these things that I want my church to be." That is the commitment we're asking of you, to dedicate yourself to being a co-builder with God, building up his church to make it something of which he can be justly proud. Let us pray. Father, we're taking away from this message this morning the, the notion that you have called us to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God, we don't need to doubt that we will be the recipient of these things. We just now need to respond in faithful obedience as we are walking this way. God, we want to pledge ourselves, first of all, to you as our Savior and Lord. And then, Lord, we want to commit ourselves to doing everything we possibly can, using our gifts in the work of building up your church. I pray that no one will leave here today without a sense of something that you're calling them to do for the sake of your church. I ask God that you'd lay very heavy on some heart, an area of ministry to which you're calling them. God, may they step out willingly and boldly and with obedience to say, here I am, Lord, send me. God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the many who over the years have labored and served and sacrificed and given and worked. God, we want to continue this legacy so the next generation will find us faithful and they too will step in and do their work in continuing the great work of this church. God, we thank you that you're faithful. Thank you for the person or persons this morning that you have brought into a relationship with yourself. Those, Lord God, who may have prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, We celebrate that, and we ask, God, that you would send people to disciple them, to strengthen them and, and encourage them in their faith so that they might indeed be settled in you. God, we thank you for what you've done, and we give you honor for your word. In Jesus' name we pray.